Turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Some of you already heard, I got back from New Zealand a little over a week ago. Matt White and I went on a trip together to connect with the churches there and to strengthen our relationship with them. And I was really blessed. I had a couple of conversations that I considered to be life-changing conversations. I think it's important to notice when your life is being changed as it's changing. And in the moment of the conversation, I was like, I am having a life-changing moment right now. I just want you to know. And uh, that was really good. One of the highlights of the trip for me was, this sounds like a really strange highlight. You're going to be like, really? That was your highlight? One of the highlights was a five-hour car ride. It was actually a 10-hour car ride. It was five hours on the way there, five hours on the way back through the countryside of New Zealand. It's not a bad country to have a long road trip through. They were like, really, you're going to do that? And I was like, I'm a Canadian. Driving five hours is like driving down the street. It's not a big deal. They're like, yeah, but it's not the same. And I'm like, that's what makes it so much fun. Because when you drive in Saskatchewan, the fear is like falling asleep. You can just be hypnotized by the road. But in New Zealand, it's like, switchbacks, skin it again. You're like over a cliff's edge and then there's a beautiful scenery, but you can't look at it because you're also driving on the wrong side of the road. Like everybody is on the wrong side of the road and you just have to go with it. You can't, you can't switch over on them and just drive your way. You have to follow their rules. So it was funny because on this long road trip, I did pretty good. I didn't, I didn't almost get in any accidents. I didn't have any Kiwis honking at me. I didn't hit any Kiwi birds either. But every single time I stopped, stopped for gas, stopped to use the washroom, stopped for supper, every single time, without exception, I got into our driver's side door and sat down and closed the door and then went like this and there's no steering wheel. And I'm like, shoot. So I got out and went around and did it again. But on this, on this car ride, I really was able to spend the trip uh, up and the trip back with the Lord and just talking with God about my life and about my purpose and seeking his, his face, seeking his, his heart to both reconcile some things in the past and also receive a sense of direction for the future. And what I want to share with you this morning is very new to me, so it's going to be very unpolished but it has to do with where I think we're going and, and what I think our culture is becoming. So if I say some things and you're like, what does that mean or how do I apply that? We will figure this thing out together. But I've started examining the book of Jeremiah for a number of reasons, which I won't get into this morning. But at the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, as I read at the beginning of service, Jeremiah is given a word and he tries to run away from the calling to speak that word because he feels unqualified. And I relate to that a great deal. Um, it may seem 
like I'm really comfortable with preaching, but I, and, and I'm used to a lot of it by now, but the responsibility of sharing things on behalf of what you feel like God is saying to a room full of people never loses some element of being intimidating. And I remember being, at, being asked to speak at one church for 10 minutes. This is almost a decade ago now. It's actually over a decade ago. And I was up late in the night feeling so insecure, feeling so inadequate. And I, I just gave voice to all this, this inadequacy toward the Lord. I said, God, like, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed to, what do I have to give? I don't have anything to give these people. And I went on and on and he was silent. And then I decided to, once I had finally emptied everything, I decided to get silent. And the Lord said, are you finished? And I said, yeah, I'm finished. And he said, this is not about you. It's about me. I've given you words. You're going to use them. And he, he said it with conviction, not condemnation. He said, you must never let yourself express this kind of inadequacy again. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I straightened up real quick, went to sleep, got up the next morning, shared my little 10-minute sermon, went okay. I was happy about that. And more importantly, I was relieved that from then on, whenever I share what I feel like the Lord has given me to say, I, I just try to be honest and vulnerable about what I feel like the Holy Spirit is doing. And what I feel like God is doing in our culture, in our church culture, is I feel like he's moving us from one place to the other. And I know I say this humbly, I know that the words I say now and into the future have a role in shaping our culture around this value. So I want to be careful, even as I'm figuring out the thing that's been placed on my heart. Jeremiah is told that the word he speaks will tear down and will build. It will supplant and it will plant new things. And that's a pretty intense thing to know about the words you're going to speak. But in Jeremiah's case, he caused a revolution in his nation with his dangerous poetry. That's what Jeremiah was. Jeremiah was a poet by trade. Jeremiah is releasing prophecy, yes, but he's releasing it in the form of poetry. And the poetry is so dangerous that it brings him before kings and empires. And he says things that people might not want to hear. And he says things that bring relief to others, but he does it humbly because he knows that the word he's carrying is from the Lord, even if he's an imperfect vessel. And the value that I think we're shifting in our culture is I think we're moving from a place of unspoken expectation into a place of trust. There are many values that I feel like the Lord gave me for our future. And one of the big ones was that we are moving from a place of unspoken expectations into a place of trust. 
So I hope this will make sense as we get going. Luke 4, verse 14. This is just as Jesus returns from the desert. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. It's a very interesting story. I... find it so fascinating that Jesus begins his ministry in the power of the Spirit by bringing a message as a prophet. He's embodying the role of prophet. He has a message from the Lord. And as this role of prophet, he brings a message to his hometown that at first makes people marvel at his gracious words and later makes them want to, in their wrath, murder him by throwing him off a cliff. So if you ever think there was a period in Jesus' ministry where he was loved and adored by everyone, there really isn't. <laughs> Maybe there was a couple of minutes. But he always had this way, prophetically, of bringing present truth to people, truth that sometimes made people uncomfortable, truth that upset the established order and reset and established a new order. And this raising of the valleys and lowering of the mountains was good news to the oppressed, but it was hard for the oppressor to handle. And what Jesus does in this moment is he puts his finger on a sore spot in his hometown. And at first, they're ready to receive him, but when he presses on the sore spot, they decide they want to kill him. But before I can unpack for you why they wanted to kill him, I want to say this. The thing I'm so fascinated by in this story is that Jesus is the Messiah they are longing for, but because they have the wrong expectation of who he is, they cannot receive him. 
They have an unspoken expectation of what Jesus is, of who he is, of who he's supposed to be. And if only Jesus would be the kind of Messiah they wanted, they would be ready to receive him. If only he would be the kind of hero they thought they were getting. But instead he was the hero they needed. <laughs> A couple of people know what I'm referring to. It's Batman. It's the end of Batman. I love that movie. <laughs> Jesus is not Batman, but Batman is kind of like Jesus. And that's a different sermon for another day. <sighs> now I'm thinking about Batman. <laughs> but because Jesus was not the way they wanted him to be, when he brought a message of hope and a message of healing, it indicted them. It indicted their own wrong-headed expectations. What I find super interesting about Jesus is that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And yet for the almost entire length of the story, he does not let people call him that. Have you ever wondered why that is? Like the only people who seem to get it right away, like just off the cuff, are the demons. And he tells them to be quiet. If, if you're the son of God, and if the goal is to lead people on the way to eternal life by receiving the son of God, shouldn't you tell people, hey, I'm the son of God? If you're Israel's Messiah, shouldn't you say, hey, everybody, I'm the Messiah, follow me. But Jesus doesn't because he can't. And the reason why he can't is they have a wrongful expectation of what that means. They have an unspoken expectation of what they think Jesus is supposed to be to them. And when he isn't that thing, it brings up all the brokenness they built their life on. And there's this weird dynamic here that I think about all the time. Jesus is in his hometown. He knows these people. He's in a synagogue, much like we are in a church. And he's talking and maybe the baker is there. Maybe a gardener's over there and they're watching Jesus get up and they're ready for Jesus to encourage them. Instead of unpacking the scriptures, Jesus merely reads them and says, these are about me. And what is their response to this? They say, is this not Joseph's son? I used to think that this was merely them undervaluing who Jesus is. They take the son of God and they reduce him down to being the son of Joseph. And maybe that's true. Maybe they dishonored him by thinking less of him than he really was. It's definitely possible. But the other thing they were really troubled with was they were troubled by the place he closed the book. There's an old song in the 90s that went, This is the year of the favor of the Lord. Did anyone remember this song? It's an old vineyard tune. This is the year of the vengeance of our God. I don't know who got away with singing that in church, but I remember as a kid, whenever they go, vengeance of our God, I imagine Jesus coming in with a sword and bringing vengeance on, I don't know, San Francisco or something. I was a judgmental little kid. The point is this. The point is this. 
Jesus does not quote the end of that verse. Jesus stops on purpose. He edits the meaning and intention of the Old Testament. See, they're ready to celebrate that God has come to save them at the expense of their enemies. They're ready for a Messiah who will be their champion, who will lead them into victorious conquest against all the outsiders who are not supposed to be in. And Jesus puts a pause in the middle of the sentence because the verse he's quoting in Isaiah says that he's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus closes the book before he mentions vengeance. And this is what makes them uncomfortable because their expectation of Jesus, sorry, their expectation of the Messiah, if Jesus is to be the Messiah, is that he will wage war against God's enemies. What they are not ready for and what breaks their expectation is the idea that God has no enemies. And this is where Jesus pokes the bruise a little bit. Because he says, hey, in the days of Elijah, I'm being a prophetic, I'm, bringing you, I'm being prophetic and I'm bringing you a prophetic word. In the days of Elijah, Elijah wasn't sent to all the widows of Israel. They're starving to death and he's not sent to them. Instead, he's sent out of Israel to a foreigner and he provides for her, and Elijah provides for the foreigner. And in the days of Elisha, there were many lepers in Israel. But God didn't send Elisha to the lepers of Israel. He sent him to a foreign general who ordered his troops to kill Israelites. So you read your own book and it gives you the right to expect a Messiah of vengeance. And I'm telling you, you're reading your book wrong. I wonder how many people don't know they are reading the book wrong. <laughs> I wonder how many people don't know that there are many ways of reading the book. How many have heard of this phrase? The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. It doesn't really settle it. Because there are many ways of reading it. The more accurate phrase would be, the Bible says it, I read it a certain way, I believe it a certain way, that settles it for me. <laughs> but I relate to this in another way too because I actually think that maybe they weren't saying when they said, is this Joseph's son? Maybe they weren't shaming him for being a local small town boy. Maybe they were excited that the Messiah might come out of their hometown. And the part of this that I relate to I want to be very careful when I say this because I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound arrogant in a way that distracts from the message this morning. The part that I relate to is I relate to the feeling of having people who place their hopes and dreams in your destiny being fulfilled. Like, like when I played on sports teams, I was never the bench warmer. I was always on the field or I was expected to score. 
And you have to understand, no one expected more of me than I expected of myself. But I would go into the game and I would feel the weight of everyone's hopes and dreams for the game on my shoulders. And usually there was someone who was slightly better than me on the team who would shrug off that pressure. And I'd be like, come on. He would usually be the kid that could like do all the fancy footwork, you know? And I'd, I'd be like, come on, man, we got to carry this thing. That became my motto in life. I felt responsible for everything because I could feel the expectations of people being projected onto me. And because I could feel the expectations of people being projected onto me, I took responsibility for those hopes and dreams coming true. And then I tried to live out my life as an ideal for other people to aspire to. I want to be vulnerable with you this morning and let you know, it's not like I've kept it in confidence, it's just something that I've been processing. I have been in therapy for the past year, (laughs) working through my way of seeing the world and how limited it is. Working through my own brokenness that I thought I could overcome by living up to the expectations I had for myself and living up to the expectations other people had of me. In one of my sessions, my therapist had me stand on a chair. Now, The weird thing about this is that I sometimes stand up here on a given Sunday morning. So I'm actually used physically, I'm used to standing higher than other people like you all are right now. Okay. I don't think twice about it. So she's like, stand on a chair. So I stand on a chair and she comes and stands before me and looks up at me. She says, how do you feel about this? I said, this feels very normal to me. She's like, I don't want to know how, how, whether or not it's normal. I want to know how you feel about this. Do you like this? <laughs> I said, no, I don't like this at all. <laughs> I feel terrible. And then she's like, okay, notice that. I'm like, no, 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 I actually want to get down. <laughs> like, please, <laughs> I feel super uncomfortable. She's just standing there looking up at me, and she just lets the moment hang there for longer and longer and longer. She says, how do you feel now? I say, I feel even worse. Can I please get down? Finally, she lets me get down. She's like, we're going to switch places. So we switch places and she gets up on the chair and I'm down. She's like, actually, I'd like you to be on your knees. Okay. So I bow down. She actually was kneeling before me as well. She's like, how do you feel about this? I said, I also feel uncomfortable with this, but I feel less uncomfortable. Because I would rather strive towards an ideal than be the ideal other people are striving towards. (laughs) I'm sorry if this is a mess. (laughs) This is the kind of faith upbringing I grew up with. Like, I was in the high school and I was warned by some of the Christian kids that if I hung out with the party goers and the popular ones, I would get sucked into their world. But I felt this strong conviction to bring the light of the gospel to them. And this resulted one day 
In 20 students, they were given an assignment to write down 20 questions about life, the universe, God, everything else. Write them down. They're these big existential questions. And then they were going to bring them to class and discuss them. And one of my friends who was actually in a grade older than me at the time said, hey, Connor, we got this assignment in our class and we think that you should answer all of our questions. <laughs> so we've arranged a room at lunch hour for you to answer all of our questions. I'm 16 years old. You have to understand what this does to your psyche. At first, I'm like, wow, praise God. I'm ready to give an answer for what I believe, amen? They're all going to get saved. It's going to be revival at lunch hour, right? And to be honest with you, it was really good. It was really good, and I do believe God used me. But at the same time, you don't understand the intensity of having a bunch of people looking at you and listening to you with their whole heart undivided and open. It's actually kind of happening right now. And this is the intensity of it, is that there is a kind of unspoken expectation. We look to people, and we look to them with hopes and dreams. We look to them, and we think of them a certain way, and we think of their life um, growing in a certain way. And if it doesn't happen the way we expect it to, we can be disappointed, and we can be frustrated, and sometimes we can even be enraged. Can I be even more vulnerable with you? Sometimes as a pastor, we meet with people. Oh, boy. Okay. When I say this, you have to be careful that you don't think I am talking. I, my dad and I share a very strong conviction that we will not preach from a soapbox, okay? So maybe I should just say this without looking at anyone because it doesn't apply to anyone here, okay? I, I'm, I'm really, I want to be clear about that because if I say this and you're like, well, this is definitely me. Sometimes as pastors, and I mean as a, as a swath of the population, <laughs> we meet with people and we help them with their issues. We pray for their problems. We carry them emotionally. And secretly, in the back of our mind, we're hoping, with an unspoken expectation, that they will grow up. Because we really do believe in their destiny, and we really do believe that once they step into what God has for them, it's gonna be awesome. So we make an investment in the hopes with the expectation that over the given days and the given weeks and the given months and the given years, that this person is going to happen. And when they happen, there will be a return on the investment. And we know this because this happened with us. I sat with leaders who poured into my life and I chose to, to be as faithful as I could with what they gave me. But here's what happens when you create a culture of unspoken expectations. The expectations can sometimes get narrower and narrower to where you can only see a person a certain way and you can only see the outcome of their life going a certain direction. And when they don't become the thing you thought they were supposed to be, you become disappointed. And this happens to Jesus because they're projecting their hopes and dreams onto Jesus. This happens to his messianic call. And what I felt that the Holy Spirit said to me was, the kingdom is not built upon unspoken expectations. It's built on trust. I'll give you some more examples. 
the disciples, <laughs> the disciples approach Jesus, two of the disciples. In fact, it's really funny because Matthew, the, the jig is up in Matthew. It's recorded in Luke differently. It's recorded that they speak to Jesus. But in Matthew, it's recorded probably, probably more accurately that their mother speaks to Jesus. Two of the disciples send their mom to Jesus. And of course, this is totally what moms do. She says, Jesus, my sons would like to sit when you enter into your kingdom. My sons would like to sit on your right and left hand. What is she expecting? She's she's expecting a messianic conquest that will overthrow Rome. She's expecting Jesus to be the Jewish Caesar. When she wants Jesus to come into his glory at his inauguration... She wants, at the swearing in, she wants her son, James and John, on either side of Jesus. Jesus shakes his head and says, you do not know what you are asking. And then he says, do you boys think you can drink the cup I'm about to drink? And they go, yes, we are willing. Having no idea what they're talking about. What is Jesus' inauguration? When is he lifted up before the nations as King of kings and Lord of lords? At the cross. Who was on his right and his left? Who did the Father choose to be on either side of Jesus at the inauguration? A thief who hated him and a thief who loved him. Two bad guys. One who was repentant and one who wasn't. At the start of Christ's kingdom, God makes a declaration with two thieves. Both the failures who know they're messed up and want to change are in, and the failures who know they're messed up and don't want to change are in. How often do we do this with maybe prodigal sons and daughters that go on their own journey? We hold secret hopes and expectations. Oh, they're going to come back to the Lord and it's going to be glorious. They are moving back to the Lord and it is going to be glorious, but it's never going to be the way you think it is. Because unspoken expectations are a counterfeit of true hope. Now, (laughs) unspoken expectations are the counterfeit of true hope. Now, what I'm not saying is that all expectations are bad. Like when you go to the grocery store and you buy your things, there's an expectation that you will give money in exchange for your items. Pretty much all relationships have some expectations involved with them, right? Like when my wife goes to work, I'm expected to put the kids to bed at roughly the same time with reasonably the same success as she did the night before when I was away, right? If she comes home and the kids are just running around and I say, well, you know what, honey? Decided to live free from expectations. I've decided to raise my children as free-range kids rather than caged animals. (laughs) They'll tell me when they want to go to bed. That sort of lack of expectations will create dysfunction in my home. I'm not saying all expectations are bad. I'm saying they are only a stage in relationship and they need to be communicated. And in order for them to be communicated in a stage of relationship, the higher way, the better way is a sense of trust where you can believe and trust the best in people and you can let them be fully themselves without imposing your will upon them. 
So in another case where they have crazy expectations of Jesus and he blows them out of the water, Jesus is being heralded as the Messiah. They in fact want to lift him up on their arms and take him by force to make him king. And in this context, this messianic fervor, Jesus says, my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed. What? See, to a good Jew, there's nothing more offensive, more sacrilegious than cannibalism. Humans are made in the image and likeness of God. You do not eat them. What does Jesus do? He pushes into the wrongful expectation they have of him. He says, in fact, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. This isn't to the Pharisees. This isn't to his enemies. This is to his followers who loved him and believed in him, but they had a broken expectation of who he was. What ends up happening? They leave in the droves. So many people leave that Jesus turns to his own disciples, his spiritual sons, and he says, are you going to leave me too? Even then, he didn't control them with his own expectations of them. And they say, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We don't understand, and we certainly don't know what to expect, but we trust you. You do not realize how valuable trust is in your life and in your relationships. The value of people trusting you and the value of having people you can trust is worth more than gold in your life. To have people where your relationship is not built on the projection you put upon them or the projection they put upon you, but rather the trust, the mutual love and honor that comes from knowing who someone is and allowing them to have the freedom to make their own decisions, but also the confidence that they will hold on to you and will hold your heart in the middle of that. I look back over my, my influence as a pastor and I realized that all of the people that I had expectations of, some of, them, some of them did way better than I was expecting and some of them didn't, but all of them turned out differently than I was expecting. Every time I imagined it going a certain way, it went somewhere else. But in every relationship that was built upon trust, even in the conflicts and the difficulties, I knew that our love was strong. And I knew that our relationship would weather the challenge because I didn't have to project a certain outcome in order to embrace them. And I didn't feel like I had to live up to a certain standard in order for them to embrace me. So now I'm going to meddle a little bit. Perhaps the dysfunctions in our relationships are due to unspoken expectations. Perhaps the reason why there are boundary violations in our marriage is we haven't actually given voice to what we are hoping for, what we are dreaming of, and what we are looking for another person to be. And perhaps that's violating the trust that we should have with one another. If the goal is cultivating trust, then I speak the expectations I have and we negotiate them. But beyond those expectations, I give other people freedom to be fully and truly themselves. And I don't forecast 
the one outcome I expect from them, but rather I celebrate who they are beyond what I can predict. In Corinthians, Paul says, love is patient, love is kind. Love hopes all things and endures all things. But you notice he doesn't say love expects all things. When I was in New Zealand, I realized, and I say this by way of repentance as a confession. When I was in New Zealand, I realized that I had been trying to live standing on a chair I'd been trying to live as an ideal that other people could strive towards. I'd been trying to live out of other people's projected hopes and dreams. And I had friends who would say this to me. They would say, I can't wait until you happen. And they didn't realize what kind of pressure that put on me. And what kind of pressure I put on myself as a consequence of that. I realized that what I thought were partnerships of trust were actually, in some cases, a strange relationship between a hero and a fan. Where I was trying to live up to what they hoped for from me, because they hoped for a lot in me, and they were trying to live up to the example I was trying to live up to. So I'm standing on a chair and they're treading water. It's a weird mixed metaphor. I don't know how that works exactly. There's a chair that floats, but I feel like I'm standing on a chair and they feel like they're treading water because the culture is built on expectations. This is what we do. This is who we are. This is what we have to live up to. And what I felt to share with you is this very simply. The future God is bringing us into gives you permission to fully and truly be yourself. Not not the you you come up with or the you I come up with, but the you God knew before the world began. And it's going to be different than you think you are, and it's going to be different than I think you are. But this sort of future is not built upon unspoken expectations. It's built on the trust that comes with loving people through the conflict without those unspoken expectations. We are not trying to create heroes and ideals that other people can strive towards because even with Jesus, who was the actual Messiah, it was messed up and broken and wrong. (laughs) The one person you could expect the world from said to them, you guys don't get it. It's not going to turn out the way you think. You want me to be your hero, but I'm not going to be the hero you think I am. Instead, he submitted himself to his father and he trusted that what the father had called him to was going to bring life to the world. There's many other things that I feel like God shared with me about our culture and I don't have time to go into them today. But the last thing I want to say to you is this. When people are free from expectation and can fully begin to manifest their authentic self, that's when true creativity begins. I quoted it to you weeks ago, and it's been ringing in my head ever since. 
Van Gogh said, there's nothing more intimidating than the blank canvas, which stares at a painter and says, you can't. You know what I realized? Sometimes the blank canvas doesn't stare at you and say, you can't. Sometimes the blank canvas stares at you and says, you should. There are people in this room, and I am one of them, who are supposed to write a book, but you can't make it as good as it is in your head, and you have far too high expectations of yourself, so you never sit down to write. There are people in this room who would have a better relationship with their in-laws and with their extended families if they stopped hoping for that person to live up to their expectations and rather just let them be themselves. You say to yourself, well, what do I do then if the person's acting in a super broken way? Well, you confront them and you make your unspoken expectations spoken and you negotiate and you figure out where your boundaries are. But if you live out of unspoken expectations for the rest of your life, A, you're going to be disappointed and B, you're never going to trust them. But what happens when trust develops? Life can flourish because now people feel permission to be brave, to take risks, to be courageous. And I realized I was waiting for people to experiment and try new things. I was waiting for people to follow along with my really noble example. I'd say things to, to, to myself like this. I'd say, well, if I go first and if I make it happen, then other people will see my example and they'll make it happen. And that's not necessarily wrong or bad, but it's an immense amount of pressure to live your life under. But if we lean on trust and we take the freedom to be ourselves, we won't look at a blank page or a blank canvas or a broken relationship and think, this is the best it's ever going to get. But we'll let something new emerge. Something that surprises us. <laughs> something that's actually born out of real hope. It's kind of become a theme this morning. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire realized is a tree of life. I want to tell you simply this, that in the environment of trust, desires can be realized. But they are going to surprise you. They're going to be more unique and more beautiful and more unexpected than you could possibly imagine. The fulfillment of your hopes does not ride on your secret, unspoken expectations. It grows out of the trust you cultivate in your relationships with other people. I am not going to be playing the role of hero anymore. It's too much. Now, I want to be really clear with you because I was vulnerable. I don't feel pressure from you. I feel pressure from me. So if, if you're like, Connor just got upset at us, or Connor just got upset at me and all of us for, for putting pressure on him, that's not what I'm saying, okay? This is what I did to myself. I take responsibility for me. But I think we're, we're called to create... This is, this is the last thing I'll say that's, that I believe is from the Lord. I believe that this environment is moving from being a hospital where wounded people are healed and from being a classroom where people are expected to grow and mature into a certain reality. And it's moving toward becoming a playground where people are free to fully realize themselves and enjoy their relationships with one another. It doesn't mean there are no expectations. It means those expectations are communicated and are clear and they're about our responsibility to one another, not for one another. 
I am responsible to do the dishes. I am not responsible for everything else. (laughs) I am responsible to be faithful in certain elements of my life. I am not responsible for other people's hopes and dreams. I get to be myself and you get to be yourself. And it's not just the selves we make up. It's not just the best we know of ourselves. It's the self we discover when we're really free to experiment and to dream. 